Welcome to Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners, the podcast for dentists who are ready to take their practice to new heights. Join your host, Stan Kinder, who has worked with the profession over four decades and now represents practice owners interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO. On the show, he explores ways to grow your income and increase the value of your practice. Expect thoughtful conversations with influential guests who are pioneers in the dental industry. From insightful dental consultants to brilliant marketing experts, from accomplished dental practice owners to innovative dental manufacturers, this podcast will bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners is here to equip you with the tools and information you need to thrive. Your practice's future begins right here. And now, here's your host, Stan Kinder. Hey, welcome everybody to another episode of the uh, Success Strategies uh, for Dental Practice Owners podcast. Uh, I'd like to introduce our guest today, uh, Mark Murphy. Uh, Mark is the proverbial dual threat. He is involved with uh, Fortune Management, sits on their board, and also is the CEO of a uh, boutique wealth management firm. Uh, So, is clearly in a position. My goal on these podcasts, Mark, is really to expose the listeners to, you know, thought leaders, and folks in the field that can bring some value to uh, uh, the dental practice owner's pursuit of success in terms of however they might define it. And clearly, you certainly fit that bill. A good starting place in the conversation maybe is for you to talk a little bit about sort of where you started, where you've come, focus specifically on fortune, and maybe talk about the wealth management business as well and how the two kind of fit together. Well, uh, that's, that sounds great. I, I was thank, thank you so so much and uh, you know and appreciate you uh stands so much but having having said that well i started in 1985 started in the you know as a you know key business strategist critical thinker financial advisor to you know i decided i wanted to be a hero to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial thinking people and then about 20 some odd years ago i was uh, called on the carpet by one of the uh one of the founders of fortune management who we had a mutual uh, client in common and i guess they were they were at that time looking to bring in another other wealth management firm other than us. We didn't know each other. And I think rather quickly, uh, Dr. Paul Bass and I realized that uh, we had more things in common than we than we didn't. And he said, hey, you ought to go meet Bernie Stoltz, who is the CEO of uh, Fortune Management, uh, still is. And he's, he's become one of my closest, closest, uh, not only business partners, but um, friends as well. And I went out and saw Bernie after we had this meeting. And uh, clearly it was that day, about 22 years ago, that we decided that we wanted to create a wealth management business because Fortune was doing so much great work for people all over the country, all over North America, helping dentists create more wealth. But then they were going back to their local financial planner, their CPA, the, you know, getting whatever financial advice they were getting, and then implementing the same failed strategies that didn't help them create multi-generational wealth. And it was that day, 20 some odd years ago, 22 years ago, actually, that we created Sequoia Private Client Group, uh, which is part of Northeast Private Client Group. And it allowed us to, to develop a strategy to help these folks create multi-generational wealth. And that's how was born. And then for me, fortune became my secret weapon and became my secret weapon because I could go to virtually any dental practice in America. I could bring fortune in. And within three, six, 12 months, we were seeing their bottom lines growing up by 30% or 50%. And that freed up the cash flow as a wealth manager and a financial advisor to help them pay down debt, to help them uh, invest money, to help them buy the right type of protection products, to, to do the right kind of tax strategies. And so fortune became the magic elixir to create more abundance 
of the world for for these dental practices. And all we've done is tried to refine it. I, I don't think we're at 2.0. We're at about uh, you know 50.0 in terms of the strategies that we've developed to create multi-generational wealth. Sure, that's great. You know, I myself, I've been working with the profession for uh, 40 years, dating back to uh, the early 80s uh, in a wide variety of capacities. I don't practice in partnership with dentists, even though I'm not a dentist, uh, kind of indirectly. I've consulted. I've done traditional dentist-to-dentist transactions, or, uh, you know, associates, partner, buy-in, buy-outs. And I've had over 15 years of experience in the in the DSO business, primarily in senior executive M&A roles, basically uh, working with dentists who were interested in exploring a relationship. Retired from my last endeavor in 2019, and then I fairly immediately launched my own buy-side advisory service. Continue to work with dentists interested in exploring a relationship with DSOs, and to the degree that it was a closing transaction, my fees end up being paid by the buyer, not the seller. And clearly, uh, you know, the first thing that comes up is, well, are you working for the buyer? Are you working for me as a seller? And what I say is, fundamentally, I have to work for both, because if a transaction doesn't work for both sides of the table, it doesn't work. And nobody's obligated to accept anything, obviously. It doesn't meet their individual goals and objectives. I'd be interested to hear from you maybe a couple examples of what you would describe as very highly successful engagements, whether it's on the fortune side or on the Sequoia side. Maybe talk a little bit about that, what kind of results were achieved and what do you think was sort of underneath the results? Well, uh, well I would say I'm very proud of uh, the book that I released this summer. It's the number one bestseller on Amazon called The Ultimate Investment. And uh, so we're proud of it, but you'll never remember anything like your first. And so Bernie and I wrote about eight years ago, The Dealmaker's Guide to Buying and Selling Dental Practices. And I stand, I couldn't agree with you more that we will not be involved like you with transactions for where for one party to win, the other has to lose, or for the other to win, the other has to lose. You know, it has to be a win-win deal. And at Fortune, we always say it's got to be a class three experience. It's got to be great for the patients first. It's got to be great for the staffs second. And that's going to be great for the doctors third. And and if all three parties benefit, and if both sides of the transaction benefit, that's a great deal. Yeah. And and ultimately, you see so many things that go on. I think that, you know, one of the things I learned from my work with Fortune is people want to grow a business. But really, the way to grow a business is to grow people. It's to pour into people. It's to invest into people. It's to develop a culture so that not only, not only that people want to make sure all their friends, family, uh, neighbors work for your, your office, uh, you're going to have people hunting you down saying, I know this is a great place to work. I want in. Where that where you no longer are the hunter, you become the hunted for tech talent. Yeah. And, and I think the culture is so, so important. I think that the second thing that, we, that you spend a lot of time with is patient reactivation. You work on profitable hygiene programs. You, you work on on making sure that uh, there can be more, some more advanced dental procedures. In fact, one of the one of the things that uh, that came out of Fortune, and I'm an investor uh, in this company as well, is a company called True Blue. And True Blue, we put together so that small DSOs and private practitioners could have a level playing field and not only survive but thrive against the big DSOs. Yeah. So as part of True Blue, we help them negotiate higher fees from the insurance companies so they can have a level playing field with the big DSOs. We have national buying deals with with some of the biggest providers in the, in, in in the industry, so that they can buy at a similar cost as the big DSOs. If you take a look at the True Blue website, there's about 30 different services that either give that private practitioner or that small DSO either a competitive purchasing playing field or the ability to give them great capability, like call center 
doctors or other things that that, that a private practitioner would not have. And so, so ultimately, you know, it, you know, ultimately, it's all, it allows that doctor to become much, much more profitable and and have much more abundance in their in their practice. Yeah, that's uh, that that's great. Uh, and you know, I, I, as I said, I've been in the DSO world for a long time. I've seen good ones. I've seen bad ones. DSO is not a good fit for everybody. And I like the idea for those practitioners that continue to remain motivated to be independent business owners of their own practice, unaffiliated with the DSO, to have access to tools and resources uh, that are similar to what the DSOs uh, frequently can bring to the table. One of the things that, from my point of view, has happened is that there's been a kind of a really disruptive impact by the DSOs on the practice transition universe, largely related to how they value practices as compared to traditional dentist-to-dentist sales, which, you know, when a dentist buys a practice, almost universally, they're relying on bank financing. And so what they're able to pay is determined by what the bank is willing to loan. Whereas the DSOs with their private equity sponsors and institutional money approach it a little bit differently and look at it really as a business, just like they would look at a manufacturing business, a distribution business, whatever the case might be. I'm curious if you have any particular perspective on that from your own experience. Yeah, I I mean, it, it clearly, anytime a disruption comes into a marketplace, you have to adjust for it. But I, but I would also say, so I, I think that one of the great things that the DSOs coming into the space have done is that it's forced entrepreneur, entrepreneurial thinking dentists to realize that you had to be more than just a great artist. You, know, you had to be, you had to go from not only become the great artist, you had to become the great CEO. You had to get paid for what you know, not what you do. And so the question I always ask people, you go to a room full of dentists, Stan, and you'll say, how many people are entrepreneurs? And almost everyone's hand goes up. And then you ask them the question is, if I took a hammer to your right wrist, uh, or you went into the witness protection program for two years, would your business exist? And if it, would it exists, would it, would it survive or would it thrive? Yeah. And pretty quickly you realize that they've got really good paying jobs. They're not, they're business owners, but they've got good jobs. They're not, you know, entrepreneurs. And so that's been part of it. The other thing too is, although there's disruption, remember, I think in the world, you, you know, you can't go through the world with rose-colored glasses. You have to see things the way they are and you have to adapt to what's there, not what it was five years ago or two years ago or 20 years ago. But also what's great about that is I think that there's room for both private practitioners and DSOs. Absolutely. And remember, you know, for every DSO that, that has done an amazing job at taking, you know, businesses and, and putting them together and leveraging and, and creating more profitability, there's another one that has not done that. They have not effectively been able to run a business where there was synergy. The other thing you're also starting to see is that when that founding doctor leaves after five years or six years and retires, many of the DSOs have not replaced them with with the like with like talent. And you're going to see a lot of a lot of uh, practices um, maybe back on the marketplace. You're you know you're seeing those DSOs you know that were borrowing money at two or three percent are now borrowing money at seven or eight or nine. They're not finding the right talent uh, to be able to go to to go do this. Uh, they're they're seeing higher costs of getting capital because they don't have the relationship. They're paying more for their people. And and if and if a recession were to occur, and I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but if you lose 10% of the revenue to stand, oftentimes that's like 30 or 40% of the profitability. Right. So I think that there's opportunities that in every place, there's opportunities for everybody. And I think one of the reasons that people hire you, and I think we ought to collaborate a lot more than we're doing, I think this is going to be the opening of a beautiful friendship. That's strange. That's I unfortunate. But I think the idea is that when, you know, that there's great opportunity and if, and if you surround yourself with smart folks, you'll find that opportunity to create a bigger, better future for that doctor 
and for his family or her family. Yeah, I agree 100%. I've long held the view that, uh, you know, the number one way to take a practice backwards is doctor turnover. And that's, I, I think that that's uh, something that DSOs in the main have not yet cracked the code on because, uh, the, the, as you say, those transitions, typically, you know, the doctor who's leaving the practice uh, has owned it for many years. They're senior. They've got pretty deep capabilities from a clinical perspective. And that's not always easy to replicate. And I, I as you described, uh, you know, I think the current sort of uh, cost of debt is clearly um, driving some changes. I'm seeing, you know, some softening in the valuations. I think it's probably more temporary than permanent, but nevertheless, it's there. I, you're also seeing some DSOs that are basically retreating the terms that they had originally put on the table as a consequence of this uh, uh, impact of the debt becoming more exp- expensive for sure. You, you know, it's like it's it's hard to generalize, Stan, like to say, is this a good deal or a bad deal? I've seen some deals where our clients have been bought out by DSOs, which I thought it was quite literally a lottery ticket. Yeah. And then I've seen other deals where, you know, they banked on, and I've heard to some DSOs in their written marketing material say that on the recapitalization, they were projecting out 15 and 18x on the recapitalization. You know, and quite frankly, I as I'm, as I'm seeing some of their business models unfold, I, I think some of them could be closer to zero X. And the only money they'll leave with is the money that they took off the table at closing. Right. And so I think that it's going to be quite a mixed bag is that there are some people that really got a good deal. And I think there's an awful lot of people that got sold a bill of goods and that ultimately are going to wind up with uh, nowhere near the projections that they were sold uh, when they told when they told about their practice. And you know when they saw those big flashing numbers at 15X, they disproportionately did not take enough off the table and they left things on the table that quite frankly may or may not turn out to come to fruition. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's why they people need people like you. They need people like Fortune. They also need to make sure that they're running a business that they are going to run for 100 years. Remember, the other thing I'm also seeing a lot now is not only deals being frozen, but people coming back and people are so excited about the sale where literally they've, they've in their mind, they've already sold. And then they come back with a deal that's uh, at, a, at a, some severe discount and the people wind up taking it at, at quite a discount just because mentally they've already checked out. So I think the number one thing is until that chick clears the bank account, you've got to be prepared to run that company for 100 years. You know, I, you, you mentioned Fortune earlier. Besides what I'll call their signature program, which is you know, people in their office, boots on the ground, coaching people, you know, morning, noon, and night. Fortune also has got some other programs as well. They've got a hygiene mastery program, which is a six-month program, which not only gets that hygiene program profitable, but it, it, will, it will get the back of the house busier and put together a strategy. I, I've probably introduced a few hundred of our clients to that program. I've never had anybody tell me other thing, anything other than thank you. They've got a program called Fortune 50, which is, again, turning those doctors from the great artists to the great CEO and helping people really understand how to run a great business. You know, and, or, and, and also for folks as part of that program that want to own multiple practices. So I think that no matter whether you're a startup, there's a startup program for people that are looking to start their own practice, either de novo or you know, buy a practice right out of school. And so the idea, what I, what I love about Fortune and the reason that I've partnered with Fortune and sit on the board is because no matter where you are in the dental cycle, they've created a program that's allowed folks to do it. And it's the only national company out there. You know, there's north of 150 coaches, uh, some of the best coaches in the world in that program, as opposed to a lot of the mom and pop shops or people that are kind of niches. Yeah. And this is a, this is, you know, it's been a game changer in more in our business to be able to help people. And I think, you know, when you're in the wealth management business, you know, if you can help your clients make a lot more money in their business, that certainly is the 
the magic elixir yeah. uh, to, to be able to help them. But but having said that, Stan, early in my career, I would go into clients and I would help them make a lot more money. And I thought, and I felt felt so good about it. But in many cases, I actually hurt them. And the reason I hurt them is because they did not have good values and ideals around money. And so giving them more money just to give them the permission to make more bad decisions and have more bad behavior around money. So I think one of the things you also have to do in conjunction with helping people make a lot more money is you have to help them really create good values and good strategies and good ideals around that around around it because most people don't have it. I agree 100%. It's always remarkable to me when you see the statistics in the profession of the number of dentists who reach the end of their careers and don't really have uh, a sufficient financial foundation to enable them to retire in a way that they would like. Because clearly dentists make, and most dentists at any rate, make pretty healthy incomes over the course of their working life. And to get to that point and not be where you want to be is kind of crazy to me. Um, so so clearly, um, you know, having both, uh, you know, sort of tools in your toolbox, so to speak, one, the ability to generate more income, and then B, to use that income in ways that are uh, wise and intelligent and are going to enable you to achieve your long-term goals is uh, really, uh, really significant. In my experience as well, over the course, and I've been in literally hundreds of practices over the years, and invariably, I have found that those practices that perform at the highest levels almost universally tend to be those that work with coaches, mentors, uh, consultants, somebody external to the practice to help them uh, figure out sort of what's the best path. And I think a lot of that has to do with sort of, as you say, driving culture, uh, getting the right people in the right jobs, and having internal systems and process that, you know, enable things uh, to operate in a, in a very consistent and predictable way. When I talk with dentists, I, I frequently uh, uh, use the analogy. I said, you know, look, the reason why uh, McDonald's French fry in New York taste exactly the same as a McDonald's French fry in Oregon, no matter who's cooking those fries, is because McDonald's has a very detailed process for how that function occurs. And, you know, and it delivers an absolutely predictable, consistent result every time, everywhere, no matter who. And dental practices need that same kind of thinking ultimately to reach their highest potential in my mind. Tell me a little bit where I, I, I you know, I've seen your bio, we've been getting to know each other a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the work specifically you do to help help dentists because you're you've got such a great vast amount of experience. But love to, love to under, understand it from my. I'd love to have a few takeaways uh, from. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, and I'll I'll send you some stuff in follow up. I've written a book also um, for uh, dentists and sort of a comprehensive guide to DSOs and things that they need to think about as they make the decision. I start my conversation in my initial contact with a dentist is help me understand uh, as clearly as you can what your specific goals and objectives are. And then I can answer for you whether a potential partnership with a DSO is potentially a good fit or not a good fit. Because my goal fundamentally is to help you get where you want to go, wherever that might be. I, you know, as I, I said earlier, DSOs aren't right for everybody, notwithstanding that the economics may, may be good. For all the reasons that you described, I think uh, can bring a lot to the table. It's important that you partner with a good one. So if a dentist says, okay, Stan, I'd like to, uh, you know, pursue a potential partnership for whatever reason, then I'll do a 
uh, evaluation analysis, basically using the same methodology that DSOs use and come back to them and say, okay, here's the range of values that I believe you could get for your practice. And they'll say either green light, red light, or yellow light. If it's a green light, then I approach prospective buyers with the the goal of trying to get at least two or three to the table into the conversation because um, in my experience, fundamentally, you know, when they know there's other buyers involved, they tend to sharpen their print, their pencil a little bit more than they otherwise might. I also am pretty selective about the DSOs that I'll do business with or that I would recommend to a dentist. So I, you know, I I want to understand kind of what where they're at operationally, where they're at culturally, what kind of uh, financial foundation they have, and whether or not there's prospects for a uh, a good outcome on the equity side. Because almost universally, DSOs uh, give a combination of cash and equity uh, when they partner with the practice. And you want the dentist to be able to have a pretty strong level of confidence that equity is going to come home in terms of uh, some reasonable terminal value. Because uh, as you described, there's certainly plenty of stories out there where they haven't. Yeah, I, I think I think that story is going to unfold. I think there's going to be more sad stories than happy stories, although there'll be both. You know, one of the things we didn't even address, though, you, we just talked about economics. The other part of it is when you sell out your practice and, you know, like the typical work back period of time for most of the deals I'm involved with is five years, some yep. are less, some are more. And people have been promised the moon, the stars, the sun. Forget the economics, which sometimes what's glitters is not all gold. But on the other side, you've been the master of your own domain for 30, 35 years. You're now in the last five years of your practice. You've been promised what the working environment, nothing's going to change. You're going to be making decisions. And you sign on the dotted line before the ink's dry. You can't do this. You can't order this material. You've got to operate this way. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And you go from enjoying your career and your patience to counting down the minutes till you can get out of that five-year deal because you forget you've been turned to an employee. You've been turned to an employee, oftentimes practicing in a way that's counter to the way that you've built your business or counter to the way that you want to go to work. And you spend the last five years, instead of in creation, fascination, and joy, you spend that time miserable. And yeah, I think that's something else you've got to also look at in the in the contract. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I, I always encourage the dentist that I talked to, I said, look, you know, in the same way that the DSO is going to do due diligence on you and your practice, you need to do due diligence on that. So you need to talk to, you know, your peers who are in business with them, uh, you know, from varying periods of time, you know, somebody that's been with them for multiple years, somebody that's been with them for, uh, you know, a year or less to sort of understand what it's all about. Everything from sort of how that transition unfolds to how it operates on an ongoing basis. And, uh, you know, I think the worst DSOs in my judgment are those that try and dictate at a fairly granular level how the practice is going to operate. You know, I've always told you, when I was on the DSO side of the table, I said, look, you know, DSOs are interested in partnering with successful practices. I don't know of any DSO that wants to buy a broken or underperforming practice because they believe that they can fix it or, or improve 
remove it. And so I think it's important to, you know, whatever the secret sauce is that's made that practice successful over time, you want to make sure that you protect that, uh, that you don't change it in a way that, that leads to some significant diminution of performance. I would just sort of end my comment to you with this is that our business is I decided I wanted to be a hero to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial thinking people 35 years ago. And we built this incredible vertical in dentistry. We have about 900 practices ourselves. Oh, wow. But ultimately, when I'm one person, you're one person, you know, how do you do this? How do you do all these things? And ultimately, what I decided is I wanted to partner with people that wanted to be a hero to the same group. I, I'm sure you're, you're going to be one of our new who's. You know, there, there's a law firm called Mandelbaum Barrett, a gentleman named Bill Barrett. I, I, I do a of work with Bill. Uh, in, in fact, he's part of what led me to fortune is oh, uh, Bill. He and I recently collaborated on a practice that had been a fortune client for some period of time uh, through a successful transition. He's part of our team almost all the time because I think he's the best at what he does. I think fortune's the best at what he does. I agree. You know, and I we're the best. Every single transaction that I'm involved in, I encourage the dentist to use Mandelbaum Barrett for exactly that reason. I think they're best at what they do. They're certainly the most experienced at what they do. And yeah, I sometimes run into dentists that sort of want to use their brother-in-law who's a real estate attorney because he's going to give them a deal on the fee. And I'd be like, you know, look, this is a once-in-a-lifetime transaction. You know, you're dealing with your life's work. You know, it's important that that get handled appropriately. And with someone that has the experience and expertise to act in your interest. And yeah, you know, I, I've been involved in, you know, many transactions over the years. And I find that, you know, good attorneys lead to good outcomes. Bad attorneys lead to bad outcomes. I'm also going to give you, I don't know if you've heard of a company called Oracare, but I was a founder of a company called Oracare. But I, I think I think we have, a, and I'm maybe off by a little bit, I think we have about 6,500 dental practices that use our product. It's a deoxychloride mouthwash. But I just want to tell the people watching this podcast, well, they ought to take a look at that because it is, it is on the cutting edge of going to be standard of care in the industry. And, um, you know, I just all, all I ask people is to try that because it's like uh, once you see it, you never go anywhere else. It is uh, the best product I've ever seen in the marketplace. And I just encourage people to, to, to reach out and see that product because it is, I think it's about ready to replace or hexidine and some other uh, other products like that as standard of care in the industry. It's so darn good. And the results that people are getting in terms of their mouth has been been tremendous. Right. Diane, thanks for that. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of is adjacent to what I think is also an important theme, and that's building a strong, successful, appropriately managed uh, hygiene program in a practice. Uh, you know, there's I, I follow uh, one of the most brilliant marketing minds ever is a guy called Dan Kennedy. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah. He, he has this concept called Acres of Diamonds, and that is that most businesses have acres of diamonds already inside their business that they walk past all the time. Time, uh, you know, in search of new customers, new patients, etc. And you know, I, when you have a, uh, a high-functioning hygiene program, you're focusing on and harvesting those acres of diamonds in a way that's better for your patients and coincidentally better for the practice. Well, I, I think you're. Uh, I mean, it's it's very clear to me why you've been so successful. Uh, I'd love to figure out a way how we could collaborate more together because I think you bring such value to our clientele and love to love to bring you more into our world because right. I, think so the, I, appreciate I think at the end of the day it's about improving the lives of the people we touch and I only want to be involved with people
people that want to make a difference in the lives of everybody. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And I, I tell Dennis all the time, uh, you know, even though they may end up not being a candidate for my services, I say, look, I'll do my best to help you out whatever way I can, just generally because I feel like, you know, the more good you put out in the world, the more good comes back to you uh, uh, fundamentally. Mark, I've taken uh, plenty of your time. I really appreciate this. Tons of great value. Two last questions. One, any final pearls of wisdom that you would offer and maybe, you know, because we talked a lot about the practice side of things, maybe if you talk in that regard a little bit about sort of the wealth management side of the equation. And then lastly, uh, you know, if a listener is interested in contacting you and learning more, whether it be about Fortune or about Sequoia, maybe if you could talk about what's the best way to do that. Well, I, I think, first of all, uh, you can pick up any of my books in, you know, Amazon or any place else that's out there. I have a monthly column in Dental Economics, but it's Mark Murphy, Mark with a K, Mark underscore Murphy at northeastprivate.com. And uh, I'd be happy to talk to anybody uh, about what they do. But I, I think that ultimately, you know, I'm an NFL registered player financial advisor. We also do business with people in sports and entertainment as well. We have some other verticals, hedge funds and private equity, construction. There's a few others, but but dentistry is clearly the biggest. And the thing that I we, I noticed, and this is something Bernie and I noticed 22 years ago, we realized that doctors were living in nice houses. They were driving nice cars. They were taking, their kids were going to good schools. They were taking nice vacations, but very few of them were creating wealth and almost none of them were creating multi-generational wealth. And unlike my NFL players who have average careers of three and a half years with non-guaranteed contracts, dentistry, you can be in the dental business for 20, 30, 40 years. And that doesn't even mean you have to practice cheer side. You can be the ownership of the business. Yeah. And that with the technology that's out there, there is no excuse for any dentist not to create multi-generational wealth. There's no excuse for a dentist not to become a multi-multi-decamillionaire. And so few of them are. And so, you know, it, you know, it's my mission because I believe that there needs to be great abundance in this world because a poor person never gives you a job. Somebody that has just enough is very selfish because they don't have enough for anybody else. They have enough just for themselves. And so I want to help dentists and doctors create multi-generational wealth for themselves so that they can create a better country, a better universe, a better world to live in. And the only way you can do that is, is through abundance. And that's, that's what our business is. I just signed me out. I think that's... Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it's uh, Dentistry has unique opportunity. I'll tell you a story. Uh, years and years ago, uh, I was working with a pediatric dentist um, who wanted me to help him sell his practice. And it was him and he had one full-time associate pediatrist. And the practice was doing just a little under uh, $2 million. The, in the preceding 12 months before he asked me to sell the practice, he himself worked 110 days clinically. And take a guess at what his uh, income was as a result. I can only guess. $1.2 million. And at, he said, Stan, I want you to help me sell the practice. I said, Paul, why in the world would you sell this? And he said, well, I've been doing it for a long time. I'm ready to move on to other things. And I said, great, great idea. I said, so hire somebody to do what you do. You know, there's no reason for you to not continue to get the benefit. I said, look, you could hire uh, a second associate, operate the business essentially as an absentee owner. And I said, you're going to take five, six, seven, $700,000 out of this business every year. I said, do you have any idea how much invested capital you would have to have to generate that kind of revenue stream? I said, you know, well, I'll help you sell if that's for what you want. And he said, well, you know, if I'm involved, then I have to be completely 
completely involved. He said, I'd rather just sell and walk away. So we sold the practice, got $1.9 million for it to another dentist. Was, you know, not a not a terrible deal, all things considered, but a fraction what it could have potentially been his if he would have thought differently about it as a business as opposed to a job. Well, if you make $1.2 million, that's like having $24 million in the bank earning 5%. So even if you had to go out and hire a great doctor and you had to pay them $300,000 to do the dental work, yeah. uh, if, you made, if you made only $900,000, that's like having $18 million. And by the way, maybe lock in that top talent, send them a piece, sell them a okay. piece. So maybe you don't wind up with 100% of the practice, you wind up with less than 100 but it's still a heck of a lot better than the cash walkaway deal after you pay the taxes and then have to put that money to work. Yeah, no, absolutely no question. I mean, I, I, it was insane to me. I, you know, the, and the interesting thing is in Northern, in Virginia, dental assistants can, can do pediatric hygiene. So he had four assistants. He was paying less than $25 an hour that were seeing two uh, hygiene patients per hour. So he knew he basically was going to be generating $10,000 of that income before he got out of bed in the morning. Yeah, you know, it was uh, just a, an absolutely crazy circumstance, but it's all about that mindset. Uh, you know, my practice is my job versus my practice is a business, and I'm going to think about it and operate it like a business, like any business person would. You know, one of the, one of the things that I I have our clients do about every 12 months or so is I have them get a piece of paper, I put a line down the middle, a T at the top, and on the left side, I write all the things I'd be doing in retirement that I'm not doing. And on the right thing, I right side, I write all the things I hate about my business. And then I and then I try to add stuff to the left half of the column and get rid of stuff on the right. With the theory being, if you're doing the things you want to do and not doing the things you don't want to do, who retires from that? Why don't you retire today? Why do you wait till 60 or 65 or 70 to retire? If you're 45 years old, why don't we retire you at 45? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, well, Mark, this has been, uh, been tremendous. Um, you and I will definitely continue uh, uh, to talk to each other um, because I do think there are some intersections between what you do and what I do and uh, that we can potentially not only help each other but to help uh, our, our clients. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make that my my business. Yeah. Say thank you. You're a, you're a gentleman and uh, and uh, lo- love the value you're adding in this world and to these doctors. Thank you, thank you, Mark. Thank you for your contribution. Yeah, and reciprocally, I feel exactly the same way. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You know, at risk of insulting you, go Redskins slash Commanders. <laughs> I, you know, it's so bad with the Giants as a Derek Giants season ticket holder. I'm sorry to uh, to pray for uh, for some trades and some more draft capital so that uh, we can be better in the future because I think this season is over for us. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, I, I kind of feel the same way uh, uh, for the Commanders. I, you know, they've got a lot of talent on the team. I'm, uh, I, it's hard for me to understand, uh, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, uh, that they're performing at such a mediocre level. It's crazy. Well, uh, we, let's let's band around our hatred of the Cowboys and Eagles together, our joint hatred. So there you go. We call me that. Five thumbs up on that one. Have a great day. Thanks, Dan. This has been Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. We hope you gain valuable insights and practical wisdom that will guide you on your journey to success with your practice. To visit Stan Kinder on the web, go to www.everythingdso.com. If you found today's episode helpful, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an opportunity to hear brilliant insights from dental industry insiders. Remember, whether you're planning your next strategic move, seeking ways to enhance your practice's value or dreaming of expanding your dental empire, we're here to guide you on your way to success.